Sustainability in Finance. Sustainability in Finance. A podcast hosted by the International Sustainable Finance Center in Prague. Join us and explore different perspectives of finance and its importance for the Central and Eastern European region. Hello and welcome. My name is Julian Toth and you are listening to Sustainability in Finance. The following episode is an audio recording of a panel discussion from the CE Sustainable Finance Summit, the largest conference of its kind in the region, which took place in Prague in May 2022. Listen to our experts revisiting the European Green Deal, the Fit for 55 package, and most importantly, the EU Sustainable Finance Agenda to rethink Europe's dependence on Russian fossil fuels. The session is moderated by Dirk Buschle, the director of Energy Community. Good morning, everybody. Excited to be here with this fantastic panel after we have heard about the global consequences and ramification of what's happening today. We will be zooming in with this panel into Europe, into Central and Eastern Europe. And again, it feels like a deja vu. We have to face a Europe which is in multi-crisis. We just got out of a COVID crisis. Thanks to that, we are all here today. We are in a climate crisis which seems more urgent than ever before. We will probably reach the 1.5 degree target sooner than we had hoped. We have an inflation due to mostly high energy prices and the specter of recession looming. And finally, we have the Ukrainian war, which also has very concrete consequences on the globe and on us here as well. Most recently, we talk a lot about a food crisis coming out of that. But the focus today is on sustainability the effect of all of this on the Green Deal. And I think what can be said already is that we don't have the luxury anymore of one-dimensional policy. You know, there were maybe a few years or maybe only months where we could really focus on pushing the Green Deal agenda, the decarbonization agenda forwards. The question is now, was that enough time to make the whole decarbonization and Green Deal movement irreversible, or are we facing potentially serious backlashes due to all the other crises and events going on? On the other hand, I think we have all learned to be more resilient, maybe to see crises more as opportunities as well. Maybe we have all become a little bit more American in that respect, and I think that's something we would like to discuss here today. Will we actually be able to turn this crisis or this crisis into opportunities? Will we succeed in recalibrating globalization, as we have heard today? Will we maybe achieve something that the French call strategic autonomy in Europe? Will we make ourselves independent of Russian energy? That's an important part of it. And finally, Will we see the Green Deal as an opportunity and not a burden under a lot of multiple stress? That's the things we would like to discuss here, and it's my great pleasure 
to welcome a great panel, a great lineup, and I would just start with our first uh, speaker. This is Mr. Ivan Miklos, whom I think I don't have to uh, introduce at this uh, forum. I don't have to introduce him anywhere. Um, <laughs> but he nevertheless is the former Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Finance of Slovakia and the President of MESA 10. And my first initial question to him would be, what do you believe will be the greatest impact of the Ukraine crisis on this region's economies and politics. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, I think everybody agrees that the world is different after February 24. It is true for all world and of course particularly for the Central and Eastern Europe. The biggest, of course, uh, danger from the situation is that uh, civilized world, which usually we call West, has to do, of course, Ukraine at the first place in cooperation with the civilized world to do everything possible for not having very dangerous precedent for the future that it is possible to change borders by force. This is, this is important for every country in the world, uh, for the world rule, but particularly for the Central Eastern Europe, of course, also because the countries at the, the, the region are small and that they are vulnerable in this regard. But what is, I think, the most important is uh, for the stability in the future, especially in this region, but not only, is how this war will end. And uh, my deep conviction also, because I have spent five years in, in Ukraine, I have been there from 2015 to 2020 as uh, chief economic advisor to prime minister and also chairman of the international advisory group, I'm deeply convinced that the only solution which will not create a new source of instability and disruption is uh, victory of Ukraine. And victory of Ukraine means to return Ukraine to the borders before 2014. There's no doubt about this, at least I'm, I'm deeply convinced, which means the biggest danger is if there will be some kind of pressure for having some bad compromise, let's give up Crimea, for instance, or Donbass. Why it is not the solution? This is not the solution because it will create a lot of instability for the future, and not only in Ukraine, but also in broader region. Just look at the public opinion polls in Ukraine, where more than 90% of people are convinced about Ukrainian victory. And, of course, any bad compromise will create a lot of tensions and instability. I can say, I, when, when I was in Ukraine at that time, it was the influence of the veterans was even very strong at that time. And, of course, the number of veterans have been much smaller as it will be in future. And after everything that happened there, these war crimes, this very, very difficult situation, this emotion is really very, very strong. Which means, conclusion, the main conclusion from this is that the West has to do everything possible to help Ukraine to win this war. I mean, help uh, from financial point of view, but especially, of course, military point, point of view, uh, humanitarian aid, and so on, so on. And, of course, energy is playing a very important role here. Because what is uh, allowing Putin to continue, not only in war, but also to financing war, but also to financing public expenditures in Russia, is, of course, export, Russian export of oil and gas. 
And this is really crucial. Without uh, changing this, without embargo for importing oil and gas to European Union, it is, in my opinion, impossible to solve this problem. Just a few figures. Last year, Russia received $240 billion from the exporting of oil and gas. This year, if nothing will be changed, and if it will continue like in first quarter, Russia will receive $320 billion. Russia's state budget is based on oil price $44 per barrel. We know that the real price is now more than two times higher. Just if you look at Putin's meeting with the government and with the gubernators in mid-March, he asked government, he asked gubernators to prepare new subsidies for families with children, for the companies which are affected by the sanctions and so on and so on. And this is everything, this is possible, of course, only because he has a lot of money from export of oil and gas. Which means only solution, only real solution, which will not create new instability and new problems and new disruptions, not only for Ukraine, but also but for whole region, whole Europe, is to is the victory of Ukraine in this terrible, terrible war. And uh, for the countries like Central Eastern Europe, it is also very important, not only for Central Eastern Europe, for whole Europe, very important lesson is to not repeat mistakes which have been done in the past. And a very good example is uh, that some countries, like Poland, for instance, after uh, 2014, after annexation of Crimea, they really speeded up the preparation for not to be dependent on Russia. My country, unfortunately, didn't do it, and we are now in much, much more difficult situation. Which means the most important conclusion from this is today to be united, to have united approach of the European Union to solve this problem, to prepare European Union for stopping import of the gas and oil as soon as possible. As soon as possible, of course, doesn't mean to do it today or tomorrow, but it is necessary to do it as soon as possible. And this is possible to do only if it will be common, united approach and solidarity. If European Union will solve this problem as one united uh, entity. This is, I think, the most important now for whole European Union, but especially for Central and Eastern European countries. For solving all other problems, which, as you have mentioned, we, we are facing now not only the consequences of war, we are facing a lot of other problems uh, and challenges uh, like ecological, like pandemic, like stagflation and economic sustainability. Because if we are speaking about sustainability, of course, it is not only ecological sustainability. We have to speak about economic sustainability. And then we have to speak about, for instance, model of the growth. If this debt-driven growth is now approaching the limits of this growth and so on and so on. But without solving this problem, it will be impossible. Thanks a lot, Mr. Miklos. May I get in there and uh, turn to Ms. Julia Patoska, our partner at uh, Deloitte. You already brought us uh, from the big uh, political and, and military prospects and the challenges that will inevitably come after the end of this war to Europe and to this region to its economic impact. And I think, indeed, uh, energy independence of Russian gas and oil will be in the focus of a post 
already of uh, in-war order, but definitely of the post-war order. And the European Union has started to prepare this in what they call the Repower Europe uh, program. And I would like to ask Ms. Patoska, what challenges do you see from the business point of view in this great transition that we have to undergo now, which may in parts be parallel to the Green Deal, but in parts may take us into different direction and expose us to different vulnerabilities. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Well, first of all, I really like the, the point that you have mentioned about the economy that needs to be sustainable. And definitely it's not the best time to start this sustainability within economies because we are uh, definitely after the pandemic far from the equilibrium that economics like. So we are definitely in much more difficult situation when we look just at the economy, economy of the European Union and economies of each member states. And we saw it even before the war. The inflation uh, at the beginning of the year was already much higher in most of the countries that the target inflation that the central banks are, are aiming at. And of course, in, I would say, quite normal situation, we know what to do. Yes, we know the typical monetary measures that could be taken. We raise the interest rates, the prices, the rates are going up, so the price of money is going up, then the economy is cooling. And we usually, in such a situation, are reaching the equilibrium again. However, this time it won't be that easy, because all of that was already mentioned, those huge investments that needs to be made, because we need to know, we need to find the solution, how to find the alternative for 40% of the gas that is currently being used in the European Union, for 46% of the coal that is also being exported from, from Russia. The same with, with the oil, 27% of the oil being used in the European Union is coming from Russia. That means that, of course, we need huge investments over here and huge regulatory changes and then operationalization of the Green Deal, Fit for 55, in order to make the change and how to do it in a situation when the economies are in such a high inequilibrium, when the prices are going so up over here in Czechia, in, in Poland, but also in Eurozone. So definitely this is a huge challenge and at the same time, we are seeing many countries, many member states trying to use the fiscal policy in order to look for this sustainability within the economy. But on the other hand, monetary policy is pulling that back. So this is definitely not an easy task and definitely needs a lot of effort from all of the actors, in fact. And what is important, the Green Deal has a great ideas than the Fit for 55 that is trying to operationalize the Green Deal, but vast uh, amount of regulation is coming to change our everyday life. I mean, both at the household level, at the business level, and also governmental level. So how to introduce those changes in a way that they start to work as soon as possible. Definitely, there, there are still barriers at the EU level, both at the member states level, but I think that awareness of the crisis that we are right now, over here we already mentioned several times the, the energy crisis that we are right now, but I'm not sure if 
everybody in Europe is already aware of it. I mean, what does it mean? What the war does mean for all of us? That means that we all need to change our mind. We need to focus on something different that we have been focusing for many years, especially in this part of region, trying to get the economic growth as high as possible to, meet, to limit the gap between Eastern Europe and Western Europe. And right now, it's not about this. We need to change our mind. So this is just for, for a starting point. <laughs> Thanks a lot. The Germans call this the Zeitenwende, indeed something that goes deeper than uh, just an, another crisis. And uh, thanks, uh, Mr. Fatowska, you took us to the economic uh, world, to the world of uh, business, but also to us all and uh, to everybody being affected by the impact of the crisis and by the impact of our topic here, the Green Deal, because all this... Uh, regulatory instruments that uh, together make this policy indeed will have uh, very far-reaching consequences on the way of how we do business, on the way of how we live and uh, how our societies look like. I would now like to turn uh, to another eminent uh, figure of uh, Slovak uh, politics, uh, Mr. Vasil Hudak, to my left, uh, who was a minister um, for economy as well, and now he was also a vice president of the EIB, now is the vice chairman of uh, Globsec uh, Advisory. And if we zoom in again more into our region here, what do you think in the spirit of turning crisis into opportunities, what can countries, what can business do here in the region to take the most out of the Green Deal. That's what we would have asked in normal circumstances, but now, of course, to navigate in this uh, multi-challenge uh, world that we are currently in. Thank you for the kind introduction. And before I go into the topic, I want wanted to congratulate Linda and her team and the whole uh, International Sustainable Finance Center for organizing this event. Uh, I believe when you started thinking, actually I'm on the board, of the advisory board of, of the center, so when we started thinking about the summit, uh, we had no idea that we will be in this type of situation, which makes uh, such discussions even more important. So I'm very happy we are here. To, to your question, um, I think that uh, in general for Europe and for this region, the, the strategy, the Green Deal direction uh, hasn't changed, but uh, I think the war in Ukraine accelerates this process. And uh, looking at this from kind of policy perspective, I, I think that we should move in parallel on three tracks. And the first one is to improve energy efficiency of our national economies. It means to decrease the consumption of energy in the national economies. The second one is uh, to change our energy mix to be less uh, dependent on fossil fuel. And thirdly, uh, to come up with new ways how to provide uh, sustainable and affordable financing for these uh, measures. So for me, these are the three tracks. So let me just go very briefly into each of those. How to improve energy efficiency. I think we have already many ideas how to do it. Uh, I know Ivan Miklos has been working, for example, in Slovakia. I was also engaged on the resilience plan. There are very good ideas. Uh, I think one of the very interesting ones comes from, from the renovation of public buildings mm -hmm. and uh, private buildings as well, which are huge consumers of, of energy. Uh, just bringing more efficiency in, into this area uh, would uh, significantly decrease energy consumption in our economies. For this, obviously, we need also new structures. Uh, I think, and when, we were at, when I was at the uh, European Investment Bank, we worked a lot on the energy performance contracts, so-called EPC, uh, which can leverage public and private finance uh, through structures like ESCO, 
And I think these are the types of opportunities which we have and which can really change the energy efficiency structure in, in our economies. On the energy mix, I think the war in Ukraine accelerates the, the need, uh, the necessity to decrease our dependence, dependence in particular of Central European economies on fossil fuel, on oil, gas, coal. Obviously, this is not going to be an easy exercise. Gas, as you know, in almost all that I know, national strategies, energy strategies for the countries in, the, in this region, gas was considered as a kind of transitional fuel. So there was a unanimous agreement that we have to get rid of coal, but uh, gas was supposed to be this transitional fuel which would help us to move from coal to, to something greener. Now, how do we do it with the situation in Russia? I was reading today's Hospodarska uh, Novini, the kind of main economic daily in the Czech Republic, and the first main article was uh, industry is frightened by the gas crisis. And that's, that's the reality. So I think we do have to move, and as uh, Ivan mentioned, and I think Yulia as well, we, we have to move towards uh, less dependence on Russia. Uh, how do we face it? How do we do it so that it uh, hurts? I mean, it will hurt certainly uh, people and economies, but how do we do it in the way which uh, hurts least is something that we, we need to discuss. Obviously, this has to go hand in hand with the uh, with, uh, uh, multiplied support for renewables. I think this has to go up. Uh, this is a big task. Uh, obviously, more renewables has challenges of itself. One, how do we make sure that this intermittent source of energy is more regular, which uh, would require massive battery energy storage systems, which I think has to be deployed in, in our economies and uh, connected to specific uh, renewable ener energy projects. Obviously, there we have another problem with Russia, because nickel is a very important part of the battery, and uh, Russia provides around, I think, 30% of uh, total supplies of nickel. So, again, how do we deal with that? And secondly, we have to move towards decentralized energy and energy systems. So municipalities, industries, they need to use their own sources of renewables, whether it's solar, wind, uh, biomass, supported by battery systems and uh, developing more energy for themselves. And last but not least, about the sustainable and affordable financing. This is something that uh, we have to look in a new, innovative way. I think what is good for us is that we have huge source of uh, public support coming, whether it's a recovery plan, whether it's EU funds, uh, just transition fund, modernization fund, innovation fund, I mean, name it, huge amounts of money that uh, this region never saw in its, uh, in its history. Question is, how do we use it efficiently? Um, and secondly, how do we use, use this public money to leverage private money? Because even with this huge amount of public money, it's not enough to uh, deal with all the challenges of the energy and energy transformation. So to give you just one example, I'm on the board of the National Development Fund here in the Czech Republic, and one of the approaches of types of financing which we are moving toward is to provide more mezzanine financing. Because we believe that uh, there are many good projects in the, in the country, in the region, but they lack financing in the initial, in the development phase. So good ideas, opportunity to leverage public money, but not enough own capital and uh, seed money to be able to launch these projects. So we need to find ways how to help these projects to grow and then become bankable in the post-revenue phase, which, uh, but this is the most difficult part for these projects to get into. 
so so much uh, to, to start the discussion. <laughs> Thanks a lot. And it's very reassuring, Mr. Hood, that essentially a lot of what you depict as the as the recipe for moving ahead is actually still from the uh, original Green Deal policy. So all these things still make sense despite all the turbulences uh, and the new context that we're in. And if my understanding is correctly, we're turning now to an online speaker. He's already on screen. I see him there in front of me. That is uh, Mr. Attila Steiner. Good morning, Mr. Steiner. Welcome here as well. You are joining us from Budapest as the State Secretary for the Development of Circular Economy, Energy and Climate Policy, which means you are the one to make this all happen. Or you are, in other words, you are the one for whom all these uh, multiple, we call them crisis, turbulences, or more neutrally we can call them vectors, that the original Green Deal finds itself now needs to translate into concrete policy measures and actions. In this respect, a simple question is what do you think is the most important policy, not only think because you'll be doing it at the same time, and strategic priorities in going forward in the situation? I think even if we, have, we are in the middle of crisis situation, then governments have always the responsibility in terms of the energy sector that we have to fulfill multiple objectives. And one objective is to provide supply security in whatever situation for citizens and businesses. Additionally, of course, we have to do it in, a, in an affordable way. So it means that prices cannot jump for long term because that would need a very big burden for citizens. And of course, uh, in the meantime, we would like to uh, go more for a low-carbon direction, which is uh, definitely one of the key priorities within the European Union and also for governments. And now this um, triangle is also expanded uh, with the factor that we should increase our dependence on Russian fossil fuels, uh, which is especially important in, in our region, in the Central Eastern European region, because during the communist regime and after the regime change, actually the regional energy infrastructure was very much based on, on Russian fossil fuels. And now we have to change uh, this situation. In 2000, after the 2009 gas crisis, we also started to implement several projects uh, in order to diversify. And in case of natural gas, we invested as Hungary and the region invested heavily into uh, gas infrastructure, into connectors. So now we can say that uh, we have in Hungary interconnectors to each of our neighbors expect uh, Slovenia, but now the interconnectivity of the region is very good. And we invested also very heavily into natural gas storage facilities, underground gas storage facilities. But the challenge is that in spite of these um, investments, our exposure is still high because we are a landlocked country and in order to access new uh, sources, uh, new gas sources, uh, that means a need for very close cooperation with third parties because within our border we cannot get uh, additional uh, gas sources. So I think that will be one of uh, the key challenges that how we can uh, cooperate even better, also regional perspective, but also in a European perspective, for example, 
or with gas on, on gas sourcing because otherwise diversification will be uh, very hard and I say it especially from a, a situation of a landlocked uh, country. What I think, and uh, we should also pay more attention, uh, this is the cross-sectoral implication of uh, the different uh, energy sectors. So, for example, what if there is no electricity, how gas or oil sectors will be impacted? Or what if there is no natural gas enough and how electricity and oil sector will be impacted? I, I don't think that analysis has been done thoroughly during the last period. And I think in order to cope with these challenges, governments uh, need to uh, have a very robust energy mix, which means a diversified uh, energy mix. But of course, this is especially challenging if you are a resource poor country. And unfortunately, Hungary is relatively resource poor. We don't have uh, uh, local resources so much. We have uh, renewables, especially solar, we have a very good potential. So now the solar deployment is really uh, amazing in Hungary. We have uh, already 3,000 megawatt solar panels installed, which is one and a half times the capacity of our nuclear power plant. So I think this is the right track. But of course, we need also other low carbon sources like nuclear. Uh, so we would like to maintain our nuclear capabilities for the long run. And uh, especially uh, what was already mentioned, the volatility of uh, the uh, renewables need also some specific solutions. And here, natural gas should play a role. But I think flexibility providing technologies like batteries or also energy communities, which can smoothen this volatility, will be very, very important. And uh, as a uh, fourth point, I would add a specific topic, which is uh, the strengthening of the grid itself in order to be able to absorb this volatile electricity production coming from renewables. And this gets more and more significant challenge for, for countries because practically we have to reshuffle our electricity grids. And uh, this can be also uh, a topic since uh, we already managed to synchronize the Ukrainian electricity grid that happened on the 16th of March. And of course, Ukraine is a big electricity market. So I think it's, it's crucial to have some reserves and stability also in, in our network in order to be able to help. And that's connected to the financing questions, because I think uh, the key challenge that now we have to finance actually more projects from the funds which are available, because we have to also provide funding for those projects where the final aim is to increase supply security and reuse dependency from Russian fossil fuels. But sometimes those investments may be not profitable uh, itself. So that's why financing will be crucial. And here, the good coordination between national financing, European Union financing, and also private capital shall be enhanced. I have to tell you that we have very good experiences with the issuance of green bonds. Uh, we issued already several times uh, green bonds in different markets, in Japan, in China, also in Europe. And I think this is the track which we have to uh, follow, but uh, maybe that uh, financing shall be also expanded uh, with those projects which provide more supply security. 
and how those financing tools or, or those finances are spent in a country, I think this is the special responsibility of, of the governments. I believe more in, in those programs where citizens get some support or support schemes and not to tax citizens because I think the, the public support of the green transition is very, very important to maintain. But if we would impose some kind of taxes, and that would reduce the support uh, from the public side significantly. So that's why I think of what is proposed now in the Fit for 55 package, so generally the directions are good. However, this crisis period is not the right time for uh, issuing or putting extra burden on citizens like with the ETS extension uh, on households. So I think such kind of recalibration might be uh, necessary in order to be successful to keep public support, but in the meantime also to into the sustainability direction, but still we have to finance also the supply security projects which are necessary in this situation. Thank you. You are listening to Sustainability in Finance, a podcast hosted by the International Sustainable Finance Center in Prague. I would uh, suggest that maybe Mrs. Patoska gets back into a question that we have just been discussing. It's on the one hand about the finance, where does the finance come from, but also on how to avoid sunk costs and uh, stranded assets. What is, you think, what kind of investments would make sense and which do not make sense and what is the government's role to guide us in this respect? Definitely the role of governments is, is huge over here and I think one of the first role is to talk to each other. So the governments are not making the decisions without thinking or understanding what could be the impact on other, for example, EU member states. So this is something that is maybe a little bit apart, but still very, very important when we think about the solidarity and understanding that it's not the case for each member state, it's a case for all of us. But definitely what member states, the governments need to do within their own countries is to raise the awareness of the situation. I, I still think that we do not talk that much about it. We do not discuss it in a way we should. I mean, we still see it, Fit for 55, Green Deal, as a huge burden, some additional regulations coming from somewhere, Brussels, bureaucracy, etc. Not as a tool for a huge change that we are facing and that we need to face. Not as an enabler for such a change. And I think still this discussion is needed on very, very different levels. Also, maybe what was mentioned, if we know that the budgets are tightened, if we know that there might be a huge pressure on the financing, we need to probably decide if we cannot have everything, so maybe we can say quite openly to the society that we need to choose right now what we are, you know, where we are putting our focus on. So this is something that I, I miss. Maybe I'm not saying it, but we still kind of, um, of course, you know, the war changes a lot also in media and the discussion in media. So it's not that easy to, you know, to come to with any other topic, especially with such a difficult one, because 
thinking about the energy dependency, it's, it's really, really difficult. But maybe there is still a place, you know, to ask people, okay, maybe lower your heating one or two degrees. It will help. During the summer, lower your air conditioning. I mean, not lower, go up with the temperature, <laughs> with the uh, air conditioning one or two degrees, it also may help. If we think about all those millions of people within the Europe, even small, small changes may, may help. And just showing the reason why we are doing it. It's not because Brussels is saying that. There is something behind it. So this is, I think, one thing that needs to be definitely faced and taken. I mean, the step needs to be taken. Another one, barriers. I have already mentioned it before, but still there are barriers on the EU level and also on the member states level with regards to the investments. I've heard there was the uh, leakage last week that, for example, environmental impact assessments are going to be losing a little bit for some of the investments in renewables, which I think is a good idea because, again, we need to focus right now on something different. And I like the, the idea, I don't know how far it's going to be in, in a such a way that there will be areas chosen where strategic environmental assessment will be, will be done on the whole area and then the specific investments won't need this investment assessment anymore, which should make the, the investment process easier and faster. But like on country levels, we still have also barriers. Uh, in Poland, for example, we have this, it's called like distance act, where limits quite severely the possibility to build wind farms because of the distance from the households. And in fact, it was introduced several years ago and it just killed the business of wind farming. And the government is, of course, mentioning that it's going to change, that it's going to loosen it, but it has not happened yet. So again, like another little piece that may change a little bit the situation. So again, second step, thinking about barriers, good diagnosis where those barriers are and what could be changed. Uh, on different, I would say, levels. And the third one, financing. And this is definitely one of the most challenging. We know that there is a vast money coming from the EU budget and uh, several new mechanisms for this. But anyway, this is a little bit... I mean, this is not the whole picture. We will need a private money, what was already mentioned. We know the interest rates are high right now and are going to be higher in many countries. So it will be a huge struggle how to incentivize also private investments. So there is another, I would say, area for hybrid financing, for thinking about how to maybe some new tools invent, especially for this goal. Thanks a lot. And uh, Mr. Hudak, you convinced me to let Mr. Tomasz uh, Provaznik uh, come <laughs> I, I wanted to let him speak at the end because you're Mr. Sustainable Finance, so you'll be the perfect bridge uh, to the rest of the summit. But now investment and private finance has been mentioned uh, so many times. So Mr. Tomasz Provaznik uh, is partner at Evermore Capital Management and the right uh, person maybe to tell us uh, about the role of uh, private 
private investment in financing all the issues and all the, the projects that uh, Mrs. Patoska has mentioned. You, I also liked a lot, Mrs. Patoska, how you already touched upon the many trade-offs that we are asked to make here between different goals in the context of the Green Deal and objectives that we had previously, environment versus uh, renewables projects, all very thorny uh, fields and area, but now we're wondering how private money can come to the rescue. Uh, it definitely can come to, 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 I don't know if to rescue, but it definitely can come to help with the whole situation. And first of all, good morning to everybody as well. And I will touch upon a couple topics that Mr. Hudak mentioned uh, and that uh, Ian Bremer uh, mentioned in the interview. First, because this is a CEE, Sustainable Finance Summit, I have to say that I see two different worlds here in the, in the region. And that's a world of the, let's say, private wealth, uh, I mean, the professional wealth managers or institutional investors on one hand, and the retail investors on the other hand. And the whole ECG idea and private money uh, being involved in the financing of ECG, this is being very much loved by the institutional investors, by banks, uh, by pension funds, by investment funds. But I don't see that much interest from the retail investors, from the, from the ordinary people that have, would have a chance to uh, buy the green bond. Probably yes, but not that successful here, in the, uh, at least not in the Czech Republic. And uh, actually, uh, Linda was asking in the interview, what are the positives, if there are any positives uh, of the conflict in, in Ukraine? And I believe one of the positives would be that it increases awareness of what uh, Mr. Miklos mentioned, and that's the energy effectiveness. Suddenly, we need to focus much more on how we deal or how we spend the energy that we have uh, and maybe discuss ways to not only increase the energy effectiveness, but at the same time to uh, find new innovative ways to produce electricity in Europe or in the EU. Thanks a lot. And of course, we would like uh, to complement that also by the view of public finance. So what, um, how are the, the roles and responsibilities uh, allocated and distributed? Mr. Hudak, you have been serving on the EIB. Um, and of course, uh, you know the CE region, uh, like the back of your hand. How do we make sure that we get public money to the right projects here in the region? Um, what is the, the role of public financing in this massive transformation, which is the Green Deal? Can we leave it uh, predominantly to private or does uh, public have to play a much, much greater role, public finance, as, as we see it is? And uh, are there particular sources where finance uh, come from, uh, CO2, um, revenues, etc.? As I mentioned, uh, I think today we have uh, one big advantage, which is the fact that uh, there is a huge amount of public money coming to the region uh, from all these different EU national sources, also the emission trading schemes, etc. So all this uh, pool of money makes uh, the transformation more feasible, if we can use it in the, in the right way. And when and I see some colleagues from the European Investment Bank here in the audium, uh, auditorium, so uh, at the EIB, when I was on the, on the board as vice president, we already made a very important decision that uh, EIB is going to dramatically decrease its investment for, for gas and any, any fossil fuels, and uh, it will um, gradually exit from this area completely. So I think this is a very important signal, and uh, EIB is a major uh, investor, investing annually over 80 billion euro worldwide, but especially in the European Union. 
And I was uh, last week in Marrakesh at the summit of uh, EBRD, of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, and it was also the same message. Uh, we want to support green projects, we want to go into sustainable green financing, and this is the way it's going to be. So I think these huge uh, international development banks, uh, of course, World Bank, etc., as well, sending very strong signal what uh, has to be done and uh, where the money will flow. We have, of course, taxonomy, which eventually was approved, which is a very important uh, element for financing. So all projects which are going to be financed uh, in the region or within the European Union have to follow the taxonomy route, and this is also a very important message to entrepreneurs. But, of course, uh, when I see the problem is, and I was trying to mention it in the beginning, is that, uh, and I saw it at EIB, but also in other institutions, I'm on the advisory board of JP Morgan, etc., that uh, these big uh, providers of money, of capital, they need projects which are bankable. But to get to a bankable project, when you are in the area of uh, new development, of renewables, etc., especially in the region like this, mm -hmm. where you have local actors who are relatively small players, and we need to support these small players, small medium enterprises, small investors who are moving in that direction. And I think it was mentioned by you that uh, what happened here in the region, also thanks, unfortunately, to this tragedy in Ukraine, is that people are much more aware of the need of transition, of the, of the energy transition and decreasing the reliance on, on Russian oil and gas. But we need to find a way how to support these small entrepreneurs and investors. And uh, this can be done, yes, by uh, engaging retail investors in different ways into, into supporting this. It is to use the public money as enablers to bring more private money into this and to finding innovative schemes how to support, uh, especially this pre-revenue stage of project development. Because I think, for me, this is the most critical element which uh, still hasn't been tackled correctly. As I mentioned, we are now within the National Development Fund in the Czech Republic, which is a kind of sovereign wealth fund. We are, we are exploring the idea of uh, mezzanine financing. It's surprising, but in the region, Czech Republic, Slovakia, I'm not sure about you, Hungary or Poland, but uh, there is basically lack of mezzanine financing, which would allow to provide uh, capital without diluting uh, the original investors. And, and, and people here in the region, I think it's maybe one of the consequences of communist time that uh, they don't want to be diluted by some others, so they want to keep the ownership of the, of the project or the company in their hands. So this mezzanine financing is something which is, I think, quite critical, and these are the types of innovations which we have to do. And, and one final point, uh, I think we should also focus on uh, exactly on this innovation element, because our region uh, has been able to survive uh, thanks to innovation and to the flexibility of people. So one area where we are looking at is so-called infratech. Basically, how do you identify disruptive technologies which can have a major impact on the infrastructure level? I'll give you an example. Data storage centers. Data storage centers have become a huge consumers of energy. It's uh, by 2040, if we continue in the same trajectory as now, almost 40% of the total energy production in, in Europe would have to go into data storage centers. Of course, it's not possible, it's not sustainable, and the question is how do we deal with that? So there are some new, new microchips which actually can reduce, uh, we have this innovation in Slovakia called Tachium, uh, which can reduce energy consumption by 40%, by at the same time increasing the, the frequency of the transactions on the microchip. So if you incorporate this kind of chip into data storage center, 
you actually improve the efficiency of the of such center by multiples. Mm -hmm. So this is just one example how we combine innovation with uh, large application and with a very important positive impact on, on the energy and sustainability overall. Reminds me of uh, what uh, Mrs. Patoska has said about uh, turning down the temperature. We can also <laughs> just send less smileys. That's true. <laughs> That's an easy But way how to do it. <laughs> I would just quickly check uh, with uh, Mr. Provasnik. How do you see this uh, massive uh, public uh, financing of, of the Green Deal? This is a, a big return of the, the state as the, the big spender. And, and just very briefly, is that something that goes well with the private uh, sector's investment? Or do you think there are overlaps or even interferences with what is actually your business? Well, probably not interferences. Of course, if there is public money available to go together with, like you said, hybrid finance, that's something that definitely helps. Of course, you mentioned dilution. Of course, you need to set up the transaction in a way that if there is private money involved, the public money does not dilute the original owners or the idea bearers of the whole project. You are listening to Sustainability in Finance, a podcast hosted by the International Sustainable Finance Center in Prague. I think we, we need to go back to politics and I would just like to ask you, following up on what we have heard and been discussing, you self mentioned uh, the challenge or the, the uncertainty that we are facing now about the future of Ukraine as one of the biggest areas where we still don't know how this will impact our Green Deal and other agendas. What, what would, you, would be your proposals how to integrate a post-war Ukraine into Europe better, faster, and to create a win-win uh, for all of us? And a second uh, short question would be, with all the turbulences, as I call them previously, that we are currently witnessing, do you think we are indeed on track. We have heard reassuring messages here today from different walks of life and players. And is that risk or that fear of a backlash against the backdrop of potential recession, against the backdrop of rising energy prices, etc., is that off the table or is it still something that we should take very seriously? So two questions for you. Yeah, thank you. First, regarding Ukraine, I think uh, one thing which I have mentioned before is how to end the war, mm -hmm. not to have instability for the future. It is connected, of course, with the European future of Ukraine. Now it will be very important to send uh, to Ukraine signal uh, to give Ukraine uh, the candidate status. It is very important. It, is not, it doesn't mean, because sometimes people think, how can country be candidate if there is war? This is not about that Ukraine will become this year or next year, uh, the member country. This is expressing of will, of will of the European Union to integrate Ukraine when Ukraine will be prepared, which means, of course, when war will be, will be ended as well. Because, of course, it is impossible to integrate country which is in war because, finally, it will be border of the European Union, the border of Ukraine, and we don't know what will be the border of of Ukraine, which means it is, it is but, but on, on the other side, it is a very important signal for Ukraine to give them a candidate status, to give them some kind of green light that if they will be prepared, if they will 
also fulfill their homework, which means reforms. Partially it was done, but not fully, which means it is a lot of which is necessary to do. But very important is to send this signal. And I hope that EU countries will, will do it, because there are some doubts that some countries are not fully hmm. convinced about this. Second question, it is a lot of risks are there. Of course, awareness of the green transition is here regarding the financing. Green financing is here. Demand for solutions is here. And that's the reason why politicians are also, also dealing with this. But there are also risks. And let me mention what I consider as the biggest risks. First one, I already mentioned, this is this uh, danger of stagflation and low economic growth. And this is very important because prosperity is a necessary precondition. Economic growth and prosperity are necessary precondition for also solving this green transition and all these problems. This one, very nice, I found some quotation from the International Energy Agency, which pointed, if COVID something showed us, learned us, then the fact that lower economic growth is not a strategy for low emission. Which means, and we, here we are, of course, in very difficult situation because stagflation is reality now. It is not the potential threat, it is reality now. And if we are speaking about stagflation, we are speaking about low economic growth and high inflation. Low economic growth is also, but not only, because we're in, in Ukraine. Estimates of the IMF is that it will be around 1% effect of the lower growth. But inflation is also a problem. And there is now a new term, which I have read somewhere, which is very interesting, because this term is greenflation. <laughs> How the policy, especially if policy is not correct enough, especially if policy is based more on kind of ideologically backed panic and, and, and not pragmatic and principle at the same time solution, it can create a lot of artificial problems. And one uh, good example is, uh, for instance, that because of this atmosphere and campaign and ESG policy, almost nobody is investing in the fossil fuel. But we still need fossil fuel. And then under investment and from the private sources, under investment for the fossil fuels and growing demand for fossil fuels at the same time are increasing prices. And increasing of prices, we know that energy prices are one of the big, most important source of the overall inflation. Another problem, which I think uh, Vasil has mentioned before, but I have to stress again here, is that increasing energy generation from the renewable sources are very dependent on some raw materials and metals, which are not only problematic because uh, the biggest suppliers of these metals are Russia, China, especially China, uh, Russia and some African dictatorship, but also because new, more strict ecological conditions for exploitation of these raw materials and metals are again increasing prices. Just uh, about copper, for instance. I have read somewhere that before it was possible to one of the biggest suppliers of copper is Chile. Before it was possible to open a new mine for copper during three, five years. But now, because we have more strict ecological conditions, it takes 10 years, and these new rules are even increasing price, of the, which means prolonging time and increasing price for these materials. Which means it is, again, it is fueling then higher inflation. 
And of course, we can speak in this uh, long, but I want to leave also, also time for, for discussion. But one, one of the reasons just last is how non-pragmatic approach of the EU to fracking of the gas brought us to today's situation. When Arab Spring came in the US, they started to, to fracking, uh, to, to exploit by fracking the gas, and they became not only self-sufficient, but even exporter. Europe has a lot of these kind of sources, but because of ecologically it was impossible, and now I have read some very interesting information that at least part of this ecological effort or forces against fracking have been financed from Putin, <laughs> from Russia. We know now why. Mm. Which means it is really interconnected like that, like that, and sometimes this we have to think also about this not only direct but also indirect consequences and relations which are connected with everything. This. Thank you. Thanks a lot. We come to the end of a panel which revisited the Green Deal in times of crisis. Interestingly, we didn't mention so much here today the climate crisis, the original driver. We were not talking about IPCC reports, etc., that normally inform discussions about the Green Deal, but that's because we are really in, in a hurricane of other crises. From what we have learned here today, from the panel is that everybody is uh, committed to hold the course, politicians and also the finance sector, but of course we don't know where the storm will take us and uh, where the ship will end and I think there is, uh, especially in this multiple vectors that we are looking at, that we have to look at the Green Deal today, also a lot of uh, topics and material for the rest of this uh, great summit days. Have a, a good um, coffee break, I think it is, <laughs> for those who are in the room here. And uh, thanks, I think we owe the panel a great round of applause. That's all possible again after COVID. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Sustainability in Finance. Check out our website at isfc.org and make sure to follow us on social media for more content. We hope you join us for the next episode.